Let's pray. Father, um, I'm about to open your word and hear your truth. And in a supernatural way that can only be done by your power, we pray that we might see you this morning. The goal here is not to entertain. The goal here is not to feel good about ourselves. The goal here is to know you rightly and to understand your truth. Because it's in your truth that we have life, and it's in your truth that we know you, and it's in you that there is life. So Father, I pray that I would get out of the way this morning, that, that our thoughts and distractions would get out of the way this morning, that we would open up a channel for you to speak to us so that we might see you and worship you as God rightly. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes my best sermon illustrations come to me on the toilet. And I, I have no idea if I'm even allowed to say that, but Larry's gone, so I'll do whatever I want. Um, no, but I was, uh, I was reading this Calvin and Hobbes strip somewhere, and um, I, I, I was reading, and I thought, man, this is just perfect for kind of where we're going in this new series that we're going to launch into this morning. Calvin's playing checkers with his friend, his imaginary toy stuffed animal tiger friend, Hobbes, and they're sitting there playing checkers, and, and Calvin says, I won, I won, I did it. I'm the champion. I'm the best there is. I'm the top of the heap. Ha, 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 ha. And he looks down at his dominion, that is a checkerboard, and then he looks around and apparently was looking for a feeling that did not come. And he says, is this all there is? Is this all there is? What Calvin was hoping for did not come to him, and he looks around, and apparently defeating your stuffed animal at a game of checkers doesn't give you the meaning and satisfaction that you thought it would. And have you ever done that? Like you're playing cards with some family or friends, and you just lose all perspective, and it is game on, right? These closest people to you in the world are now your mortal enemies. Like, you're going down, Grandma, right? Like, and you're just like, you cannot wait to crush them. And every card that's flipped, it just matters so much. And at the end of the game, you win, and you're the only one celebrating. And then you kind of look around, and it's like, oh, now what's for dinner, right? <laughs> Like, you just move on, and it didn't change your life the way that you thought it might, right? And, and there's so many times that that happens to us. I, an extreme example of this, I remember several years ago, I was watching the Hall of Fame induction. Michael Jordan, my opinion, and I think it's a fact, the greatest basketball player that's ever played, un, unrivaled in, in his success. At one point, he was the most popular person on the planet, Six championships, more awards and accolades and fame than anybody else has ever seen in the NBA. But at the age of 50, when he gave this Hall of Fame speech, he was overweight, bitter, and completely joyless. And you listen to this speech, and all he does is he goes back and he recounts all the people had wronged him, slighted him, and motivated him to be the best. But now that he was the best, there was nothing to show for it. And there was no satisfaction that ultimately came of it. And isn't this a common experience for all of us? We're desperate for something, desperate for meaning, desperate for purpose in our lives. And then when we get the thing that we thought it would give that to us, we find ourselves unfulfilled. You remember the famous song of the Rolling Stones, I can't get no... Man, 
we're going to start auditioning for an Easter choir, and I heard a couple of potentials, because I try, and I try, and I try, and we try, but we can't get it. So what the stones said, and that's what we find in our lives. What, what do you think will satisfy you in your life? We say, man, if I was just a little bit taller, like if I was just a little bit prettier, right? If I was finally recognized for the things that I've done, if I just could move one or two floors up in my office building, if, I, if my house just had that addition, if, if the gadgets that I owned were just a little bit slicker, and we're all on this lifelong scavenger hunt to find the thing that's going to give us meaning and satisfaction. Carl Jung was a very, very smart man. He was a Swiss psychotherapist. And, and in his book, Modern Man in a Search of a Soul, he recounts the thousands of people that he had met and seen and heard from and the despair and, 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 and the hopelessness in their lives. And Carl Jung said this, he said, about a third of my cases are suffering from no clinically definable neurosis, but from the senselessness and emptiness of their lives. This can be described as the general neurosis of our time. So he said, the people, the problem is not just that the wires are crossed, he said it's that they, their, their lives are empty. Their lives had no meaning. Their lives had no purpose. That's what drove them to me. That's what drove them to the end of their rope. And it's no mistake. Years ago, when Rick Warren, he wrote this book, The Purpose Driven Life, okay, this became a New York Times bestseller, not just like for Christian books, but in general, for all books that were being read across the nation. Because we were a country, we're a world in search for purpose and meaning. And in this book, he describes this survey by a doctor, Dr. Hugh Moorhead. And he interviews 250 of the world's leading scientists, writers, intellectuals, philosophers. And he asks them the simple question, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And the responses that he gets are fascinating. Some people, some of the authors, they, they write back and they, they give their best guesses, okay? Some just kind of admit they have no idea. Some of them even wrote back to Moorhead and said, could, if, do you know the meaning of life? Like, could you tell me if you know, if you've got a secret, if you've got an inside track? And see, the conclusion of what he draws here is that the wise men of our generation are running very low on wisdom. Because if you can't answer that question... And what's the point of answering any other question? And that might be why we see so much joylessness in our society today. I found this suicide note that was left from a young college student. And it reads, To anyone in the world who cares, who am I? Why am I living? Life has become stupid and purposeless. Nothing makes sense anymore. The questions I had when I came to college are still unanswered, and now I am convinced there are no answers. There can only be pain and guilt and despair here in this world. 
And then, and this is, this is profound. He said, my fear of death and the unknown is far less terrifying than the prospect of the unbearable frustration, futility, and hopelessness of continued existence. The student said, I'm going to take my own life because I'm less scared of dying than what it means to live. And so we ask the question, is there anything that can satisfy us? Like, is hope just a myth? Is joy, happiness, meaning, ultimate value a realistic goal for us as human beings? And we think, well, maybe we just haven't found the treasure map. Maybe we haven't found, maybe we're not, maybe we're not looking in the right places. And as Jeremiah, David Jeremiah, he said, he said, could it be that the answers to these questions are found in a dusty old composition tucked away in a book found in your home and it has a message for you that we have long, too, too long missed I want to introduce you to Ecclesiastes. It's an old book, thousands of years old. It's buried in the middle of your Bible behind all those psalms. Rarely disturbed by preacher or reader. It's not a popular book. It's not a happy-go-lucky, cheery, welcome-to-church kind of a book. It's written by Solomon, the wisest man on earth. You'd probably better known for his book of Proverbs. But you, as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, it is startling, startling, startling? It is very startling in the way that it looks into our modern insights that we would say today. Some of the things that are written in Ecclesiastes could have just as easily been written in a postmodern university textbook. It could have been written by, uh, you, could have been, you could have been found them in a celebrity interview or, or in, like, the, the teenager's suicide note. Could have been an urgent email that was written just an hour ago. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is not Proverbs Solomon. This is not, I got all the answers, I got all the, the things that you need for every, every different aspect of your life. This is a weary and despairing Solomon, a one who has come to the end of his life, and he looks around and he goes, what is the point of all of these things, of this existence? And Solomon's going to touch the very tender spot that each of us have felt in our lives, like a skilled doctor, and he's going to say, does it hurt right here? It's a new year. There's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> say that extremely tongue-in-cheek. And I wanted to start with my, my, my favorite book, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible, and, and, and one of the reasons I love it so much is because Ecclesiastes just comes in like a bowling ball and knocks everything over in our lives, and it kind of levels the playing field. It puts us all at the same starting point, and it asks the question, what is the purpose? Why? What are we doing here on earth? Because if we can't answer that question, everything else in our life it's just a chasing after the wind, to borrow a phrase from Solomon. 
And so we're going to look at this book, and, and you're going to see why at the end of today's message, why we're going to call this series Life Under the Sun. And for the next few months, we're going to walk through this journey together in search of meaning and purpose and value. Now, there's no Larry here anymore. So I'm here to tell you the cheery news of Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless. How's that for your bedtime devos with your kids tonight? (laughs) You have no purpose in your life, son. Now drink some milk and go to bed. Or not. Who cares? What's the difference, right? (laughs) The title of this book is Ecclesiastes. If you look at verse 1, he says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The interesting thing here, the title Ecclesiastes, as well as what this author calls himself, teacher, some translations say preacher, Ecclesiastes and teacher actually come from the exact same Hebrew word. And the word is Kohelet. The the word describes somebody who convenes an an assembly of wise men and then is the principal spokesman in that group. So they get all the smarties together and they're the smartest of the smarties. Okay, so Solomon, this this author is the wisest man talking to other wise men, and he has something to tell them. Now, it's generally agreed upon that it's Solomon, even in many translations here, as you see here, it says the son of David. Um, We know some of David's sons that weren't very wise. Kind of boils it down to Solomon. Um, There's some arguments here and there, but it's not worth it for this discussion um, today. We're going to talk about Solomon a little bit later. So he gets these wise men together. He assembles them together, and these are the first words that he says. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, says the Ecclesiastes. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Welcome to church. This, this word here, no doubt about it, is the, is the theme of this book. It's used 38 times. And the word basically refers to emptiness or something that quickly comes and it quickly goes. It's transitory in nature, which means that there's no purpose to it. It's here and then it's gone. Okay, there's no meaning. Uh, the, 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 uh, The use of, you might see in your translation, you might say vanity of vanities. Some translations say meaningless, meaningless. This is not just redundancy. It's actually a, a poetic device that's used in the Hebrew. And it's, it's used to intensify. So what he's saying here is it's like it's not just meaningless. It's like meaningless squared. It's the meaningless-est. Okay? It's, it's utterly, absolutely, completely without meaning or purpose. And the, the word picture here is like a vapor. Something that comes and then it goes very quickly. In fact, the message, not a translation, but it says... Smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. In other words, nobody's like, man, you remember that vapor of 75? Like, of course I do. How could I ever forget it? Changed my life. It was there for like half a second. The, the, the point is that it, it means nothing. It's here and, and then it's gone. In May of 1996, journalist John Krakauer ever thirsty for adventure and thrill, charged up to the top, well, probably didn't charge, but climbed up to the top of Mount Everest. In that expedition, 12 of the men lost their lives. Krakauer, who had aimed to reach the summit of Everest for many, many years, finally achieves the goal. And he writes in his journal, which is accounted for, if you've ever read Into Thin Air, this is kind of accounts that story. Last year there was a movie made on it. 
um, called Everest. Haven't seen it, not, I don't know if it's good or not. But he begins his account by describing his feelings of what it was like to be sitting literally on top of the world. He says, May 10th, straddling the top of the world, one foot in China, the other in Nepal. I cleared the ice from my oxygen mask, hunched a shoulder against the wind, and stared absently down at the vastness of Tibet. I'd been fantasizing about this moment and the release of emotion that would accompany it for many, many months. But now that it was finally here, actually standing on the summit of Everest, I just couldn't summon the energy to care. I snapped four quick photos, then turned and headed down. My watch read 1.17 p.m., all told, I had spent less than five minutes on the roof of the world. The first man to ever climb Mount Everest, Sir Edmund Hillary, had a very similar experience. So there was this immediate kind of powerful ecstasy that he felt as he stood on top of Everest. But then that was just this fleeting moment. And after that, he said he felt nothing but desolation and despair. He said, where do I go from here? There's, there's no higher mountain to climb, and this didn't give me what I hoped that it would give me. The moment that both of these men had anticipated their entire lives, and it failed to deliver. And Solomon, who was given more wealth than anybody else at his time, more wisdom than anybody else at his time, more women than anybody else at his time, he made the exact same discovery that it's empty at the top. And I don't know what the Everest is in your life. Maybe it's a promotion you were waiting to get. Maybe it's this dream vacation that you thought we're going to go on this and it's, life is going to be good from now on. If I just win the lottery, what's the Powerball up to? $1.3 billion right now? Like if I got that, man, billion dollars, you kidding me? Life is good. But like Calvin... We get it, and then we look around, and we go, is this all there is? So we play this if-only game. We play this life is better if I can do this, and it's always on to the next thing. And, 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 we, and this existence that we play out in our mind that it would be better, life will be better, I will find ultimate satisfaction, but it's somewhere over the rainbow. But the problem with that line of thinking is Ecclesiastes. Solomon says that everything is meaningless. Everything. Not just like some things are meaningless. He says everything is meaningless. Work, pleasure, friends. I don't care what you're doing. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Like, I just want to give Solomon a hug. <laughs> I just want to like give him a cup of hot cocoa and say, Solomon, it's going to be okay, buddy. Like, bummed out, dude. And, and, but the thing is, he says everything's meaningless. Why? His argument in chapter one for why life is meaningless is because it says, after everything you've done in your life, you will die and everything remains unchanged. Look at verse three. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Now, meaningless is the theme, but right attached to it, the second most important phrase or most used phrase in Ecclesiastes is under the sun. It's used 29 times in this book. And the idea here, it implies an earthbound view of things. 
In other words, it's from our perspective here. Solomon will not be speaking from an eternal perspective. He does not have heaven in mind. He's not looking from God's point of view. He's looking down in the trenches with us. David Jeremiah calls his book on Ecclesiastes, Searching for Heaven on Earth. Asking the question, is there life before death? Or are we just simply surviving until we get to the grave? Is there heaven? Is there happiness and contentment and value and purpose right here, right now? Is there meaning under the sun? And I'm going to spoil the book of Ecclesiastes for you. No. Solomon's arguing from this point of view we would call empiricism, which is basically just a fancy word for saying things that can be experienced by the five senses. What can I see, taste, hear, touch, and smell? Okay? He uses those five senses to argue about the existence of what we see in this life. Now, as believers in Jesus, we have what Matt Chandler calls a sixth sense. Now, it's not seeing dead people, but we do have a sixth sense that we're going to mention here in a little bit. So he moves on to this, oops, there you go. He moves on to verses 3 through 11, and you'll see in your Bible it might be written a little bit different, like when it's the prophets and they do that, like they move it, they make it like this poetic looking uh, uh, arrangement. It's because this, this in Hebrew was actually a poem that he wrote, verses 3 through 11. It's a poem that I call the cycle of silliness. Okay. He talks about the futility in nature. What do people, verse 3, gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the north and turns, or the wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Another way to look at these first few verses here is what I would call the treadmill of life. You ever been on a treadmill before? It's awful. Now you get on this thing and you run and you run and you run and then it stops. And what have you got? You're sweaty. You increased heart rate. You got exercise. (laughs) And then you step off and you're in the exact same spot. You didn't go anywhere. Like, you can run for hours on that thing, and you haven't moved an inch. It's depressing. That's why I just avoid them. Um, But Solomon here, he says, listen, the sun, it rises and it sets, and it just goes around and around. Now, obviously, he had some, you know, heliocentric issues that he had to work through, and we know now the sun doesn't rise, we're spinning, but whatever. Um, That we know that the wind, it blows around and around, and just... And, and then the, he says the water, like the rain comes, it goes into the sea, and then it evaporates back up into the, the clouds. And he says it's just this cycle, this circular silliness. And he says, what's the point? Nothing changes. It just happens day after day after day. And similarly, Solomon says, in our lives, man, it just feels like we're living in this boring, meaningless rut, doing the same thing day after day. I mean, no matter how hard you work, there will always be laundry. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it, like, my dad is a laundry fiend. Like, you try to take your shirt off and put it in the hamper, before it hits that ground, he snatched it up and thrown it in the washer. Right? He's all over it. 
But I don't care how much you're on top of it, there will always be more laundry. Like There will always be more grass to cut. There will always be another haircut to get. You will always have to pay bills again and again and again. And in verse 8, Solomon says, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Basically, he's saying every day becomes the same thing, and to what end? Now, recently, I got a new job. Um, I, I got hired as a pastor at this local church. And it was pretty exciting. I mean, it's just new thing. Anytime you get a new thing, so you got a new office, I get to decorate my office. I have new hours, kind of new responsibilities. Like, man, this is, and, and always the idea of what will be is better than what actually is. Not that I'm saying I'm dissatisfied. Um, but you, you know, you get, and I, you know, I get this fat paycheck. I get tons of bennies. I mean, you know, it's, it's good. It's good. But often we think, right, if I get this new job, if we move, if I get this new spouse, then life is going to be better. But no matter what job you're at, no matter who you're married to, no matter where you live, life eventually becomes routine again. And that change didn't satisfy you the way that you thought it would. Think about tomorrow morning. You wake up, what, 6.15? 9.15, you slackers. You shower, you get dressed, you drive into work. On the way, of course, you stop at your favorite coffee cart, the most important part of the day. You go to work, you eat lunch, you work some more, you drive home past the workout place, you decide better, you keep going home, you sit down for dinner, you watch television programs, and then you go to bed. And you know what happens the next day on Tuesday? The exact same thing. You wake up at the same time. You drive to the same coffee place. Nobody ever changes their orders. You go to the same job. You get the same lunch or maybe one of three different lunches that you cycle through because you like to mix it up. Then you go back to the same job. On the way back home, you same ignorance toward the same exercise. You get back to the same house, watch the same programs over the same dinner. You go to the same bed. And life is more like Groundhog's Day than any of us would ever care to admit. In verse 9 and 10, Solomon says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. Solomon says, listen, there are people trying to pretend that they aren't in this rut. And so we get these new trinkets and these new toys or these new ideas, and we try to pass them off as something new. And then these things can deceive us from believing that we are actually in this cycle of silliness. And often we think that this, but you know, you get that new thing, and it can bring a weird sense of like excitement in your life, can't it? Recently, I got this new cell phone, the iPhone 6S. Oh, yes. And I was standing there in the GCI store, and, I, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but, like, I got this, like, emotional rush. <laughs> so I just, like, held it in my hands. I'm like, wow. 3D touch. Like, I touch it harder, and different things happen, right? Like, I can just talk to Siri now, I don't even have to press the button and she responds to me and I put her on the setting. She's a British accent. Oh. 
Way better battery life than my old cell phone. Way better. And a quarter inch more screen. Life is finally good. Solomon was wrong. But Solomon says, no, Justin, there is nothing new. It's just a newer version of what's come before. And eventually, no matter how many cool toys the success has, it will eventually become old, outdated, and chucked into the garbage with the other phones of cellular past. And no matter how much we see, how much we hear, it will not satisfy us. Nothing is actually new, Solomon says. No changes are going to make your life better. New job, new money, new spouse, it doesn't matter. It will not satisfy. Then there are some who say, no, Solomon, you're wrong. I am actually going to change the known universe. I am so phenomenal at my work or with my family that people will remember me forever. I need to do something with you. Raise your hand if you know the name of your grandfather. Raise your hand and keep it up. If you know the name of your... You better all raise your hands. I can, Ray and Theodore. Keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. You know your name of your grandfather. Now keep your hand up if you know the name of your great-grandfather. Okay? We lost some. Okay? Now keep your hand up if you know the name of your great-great-grandfather. Starting to lose some. Okay? Like maybe you guys still got a George Foreman thing going on here. Raise your hand now. Three greats. Great, great, great grandfather. Okay, I've got three or four. What's the name of your great, great, great grandfather? Wow. All right, so four out of like 150. You guys are still proving my point. Say, so the, the point here is, verse 11, I bet we could go just a few more generations and eventually you'll not know it. Um, verse 11 says, No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Say, I don't care what you did, the great things that you've accomplished in your life, eventually everyone is forgotten. No one will remember you after you die. How's that for a Hallmark card, right? No one will ever remember you after you die. Happy birthday. Verse 12, Solomon says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. You remember the story of Solomon? when he, God says, Solomon, I'm going to give you anything you want. Any request, his personal genie. Solomon's response is, I want wisdom. And, Saul, and Jesus, God says, because you asked for wisdom, you made a good choice. I'm not only going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you all the other wealth and the power and the fame on top of that wisdom. So here's Solomon sanctioned by God as the world's wisest man. And he says, I take that wisdom, I applied, verse 13, my mind, the best mind ever, to study and to explore by wisdom, the most wisdom anybody has ever had, all that is done under the heavens, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Verse 15, I have, or 14, I have seen all things that are done under the sun all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon says, I'm going to use my mind, my wisest mind that has ever been. And he employs the five senses stemming from that mind to explore the world. And he uses these five senses to, to look at these six areas. As we go through Ecclesiastes over these months, you're going to see six areas that Solomon is going to explore. Wealth, power, religion, 
friends, work, and pleasure. Instead, I use my wise mind, five senses, to survey these six areas of human existence. Kind of this big, enormous case study or life experience to see if there's any of these cracks and crevices that do offer meaning and purpose into my life. And he says, when all was said and done, at the end of that case study, I found no meaning in any of this. And then in verse 16, he says, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon says, I'm smarter than you. I'm richer than you. I'm more powerful than you. I have more women than you. And I've looked at all of this and I have seen that there's no meaning. So if Solomon did the searching and found nothing, what do we think we're going to find? And it's interesting here, he says, verse 17, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He says, the more you know, the actually, the more depressing it is. And Solomon says, I tried both routes. I tried wisdom and I tried folly. Like, you remember that scene in Aladdin? Of course you do. And Jasmine and Aladdin are talking. Here comes Jasmine. She's like the princess in the palace, and he's just some little street rat. And they're talking back and forth, and and he goes, man, if I could just live in the palace where I have all this fame and this wealth and, and all this recognition. And she goes, man, if I could just get out of the palace and live like you as a simple person who's free to roam wherever they want. And what they realize is they both feel so trapped right? That they both, regardless of having everything or having nothing, both ends lead to the same place ultimately. And Solomon says, I've tried the highbrow route and I've tried the lowbrow route. I tried wisdom, I tried folly. I tried caviar, I tried macaroni and cheese. And he says, both routes led to the exact same place, neither satisfied. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought church was supposed to be happy. Like, Here I come to this place to find hope, and Justin does the Texas two-step all over my dreams and aspirations. Now, some of you aren't bothered at all, because you're thinking, now i got ammunition for later in the week. You know, when the spouse says, honey, have you done the dishes yet? And you go, why? (laughs) What is the point? Vanity of vanities, meaningless. You heard the preacher, man. Why am I? I'm not even going to work tomorrow. Some of you guys are like, are you kidding me? This is the best sermon series ever. But listen, we're going to come back to this pretty much at the end of every message. Until you and I are ready to honestly evaluate our lives, not just play the game and put the masks on, But until we're ready to honestly look at our lives and see, using our five senses, if there is any meaning, then we're just stuck on this treadmill. We're just caught up in the same rat race that the rest of the world is is in. But if if we will finally slow down enough to look, we're going to come to the same conclusion as Solomon. That using our five senses, there is no meaning, there there is no purpose, until we learn to develop a sixth sense. What Matt Chandler called in his series, the sixth sense of faith. And the sixth sense of faith has the power to take us beyond the sun. 
Not just focus on what's under the sun, what can be seen and heard and touched and tasted and smelled, but this takes us beyond the sun. Kierkegaard, I love his definition of sin, because sin is the problem that we each face, right? He said, sin is building your self-worth. Sin is building your self-worth on anything other than God. Sin is building your self-worth on anything other than God. Those six things that we mentioned, wealth and power and and friends and pleasure, all of those things, they're good things. They're God-given things. But good things made into ultimate things will drive you into the ground. Good things made into ultimate things will not satisfy you and become idols and are sin. The best things in your life, family, friends, even things about God, you reading the Bible, you worshiping God, when we do those things and we look for self-worth in them, in and of themselves, they are sinful, they are idolatrous, and they will not give us what we're hoping they will. Because at the end of the day, we each are going to die, we're going to get painted up, put into a box, and buried into the ground. And each of those things in our lives will be seen as meaningless. So we need someone outside of ourselves, outside of the cycle of silliness, to break in from beyond the sun and offer hope. And that's exactly what Jesus did. John 10, he said, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And it's only going to be through the eyes of faith, seeing Jesus, that we're going to find anything of meaning and purpose and ultimate value. And the beautiful thing is what Jesus has done is he has redeemed all that is, and that allows us to now go back to those things that we cannot put our self-worth in, but through the eyes of faith in Jesus, now all of those things, work and pleasure and religion and power and relationships, all of those things put in their proper place become beautiful and are infused with meaning, purpose, and value. So my hope this morning and in this series is that we on this journey would use the five senses that God's given us to honestly evaluate our lives, that it might lead us to look beyond the sun and develop the sixth sense of faith and find the meaning in life through Christ that each of us is dying for. I'm going to end with this quote from Donald Glenn. He wrote it in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, because some of you might say, man, this just seems like a super depressing book and a subject. I don't know if I can handle this, but hear what he says. Thus, the dominant mood of the book is pessimism. It is. But the author Solomon was no pessimist, cynic or skeptic, as some critics have claimed. He was a believer who sought to destroy people's confidence in their own efforts, their own abilities, their own righteousness, and direct them to faith in God as the only possible basis for meaning, value, and significance to life under the sun. And the the kind of our thesis statement that we're going to continue to come back to is this. This This is from Donald. All human endeavors lack ultimate value. All of them. But life should be, can be, can only be enjoyed in the fear of God as a gift from his hand. And until we utilize the sixth sense of faith and see God through Jesus as he really is and see everything else as a gift of grace from his hand, we will be chasing 
the winds. Father, you put us all on this earth. You created us. This world without you, however, is chaotic, hopeless, and meaningless. But God, with you, and seen through the lens of faith, we can re-enter this world and see how Jesus has redeemed it and infused meaning into it. God, each of us have been on our own journey, and we've been turning over rocks and looking for meaning in different areas of our lives. But the common experience that each of us have had is as we've looked for those things, we've found that we cannot find ultimate value in them. And Father, I pray that we would leap off the treadmill of life into your arms where you hold us and you love us and you, Father, in your Son, give us meaning and purpose and value. Without Jesus, we are lost. Without Jesus, we are hopeless. Without Jesus, we are empty and void. But with Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Father, for the grace to trust you more. Father, for the the grace to find in you the real meaning that each of us is dying for. We thank you for Jesus, that he died for us, that he came down to this world to give us life and hope and meaning. May we, on our journey, together as a body, find that purpose in you and in you alone. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.